A few years ago, uh, a guy here in our church, a family here in our church, asked for help on a project that he was doing here in town. And uh, it was a construction project. I didn't really know much about it at the time, but he said, maybe you can come over and help. And I figured, you know, I'm, I'm not mad skills with construction, but I know my way around a hammer, you know what I'm saying? And I know how to work a screw gun. And I figured, all right, I, I, I can help out. When I arrived on the scene, I realized this wasn't that sort of construction project because he was building a two-story shop on his property without equipment. So it was like, I've never been to a barn raising or whatever, but that's what I picture this thing in my head. I got there, and there were like four other guys, and we all were supposed to get up on these 12-foot poles and hold on to the pole with one hand and then try to, when the truss was hand-raised, the truss kind of holds the roof. You know what I'm talking about? These are heavy. And I'm hanging on for dear life, and then we're supposed to put these bolts on. I've never seen bolts that big. I didn't know they made them that big. And, you know, he got a wrench in one hand, and he's like, this is going to be fine. I thought we were going to die. <laughs> At several moments, I thought we were going to die. I thought someone is going to have some catastrophic accident in this thing. Well, obviously, I didn't die. And if you want to see it, it's on the way. It's on Miller Avenue. The Chase family, they're great people. But that, that was a project. But it looks good, and it's still standing. So there you go. They moved to Idaho not too long ago, but it's still standing, and I, I feel good. I feel like I had a small part in that. And I will never volunteer again. If you want me to help you on a project and you say it's a construction project, I'm going to ask more questions before I say yes. Not going to happen. But we build stuff. Humans, we're about building stuff. We're building stuff all the time. Maybe you've seen some amazing buildings. If you've ever been to Manhattan, some pretty amazing buildings there. I'm always amazed at how something can be that tall and not blow over. Then have they figured out how the pyramids were made yet? Is there consensus on that? Was it aliens? We don't know. These, these things are pretty amazing. You, you look at the seven wonders of the world, the Taj Mahal. That's pretty cool. I've never been there. But you see these buildings. Humans are always building and constructing things. And sometimes we're restoring stuff. Anybody in here ever restored anything, like a piece of furniture or a house or anything? Maybe you've got an old house and you're fixing it up and that fun of that. Yeah, we like these projects. Humans do that. And you may wonder, why are we always into this building stuff and rebuilding and constructing? Well, what's the first sentence of the Bible? You know this, even if you not, don't know the Bible. In the beginning, God created. So right from the top, the God of the universe, who we're, says we're made in his image, so it makes sense that we like to build, because the first thing he's doing is he's building and creating stuff, some cool stuff. They keep finding stuff on telescopes that he put in place that we wouldn't even have known that were out there if we wouldn't have had a telescope in the last hundred years. We're building stuff all the time. We're, we're talking about certainly building stuff today because we've been in this series called 52, and you'll find out actually today in chapter 6 why we named this series 52. Some of you already know it because you're smart Bible nerds, but we're going to get to that today, and the project that they're working on is, as it turns out, more than just rebuilding a wall or two. We get to this series, and Nehemiah, who is a leader, uh, he shows up on the scene, and there's already been decades of work 
in this whole process. By the time we get to the book of Nehemiah in the Bible, this thing has been going on for a while. Decades, generations. Uh, some 80 years has already been happening. And God's people, who were the, the, who were the Israelites back in the Old Testament days, back with Moses and bringing out the people out of Egypt, that, that group of people, the Hebrew people, well, through civil war and, and, and bad kings and all kinds of things that happened, empires that rose, the Assyrian Empire. This is a history lesson. You're like, thanks, man. But the Babylonians came and then the Persians came and on and on. But God's people had been sort of reduced to a remnant. In fact, there may have been maybe a half a million, would you say, Judeans or Jewish people, the Hebrew people, uh, kind of left in the Babylonian and then Persian Empire. And a small group of them decided to go back to their homeland, that is around Jerusalem, and to do this rebuilding project. And Nehemiah is this leader that helps get that done. And it does get done. But it's less about rebuilding and construction. It's more about almost a people who felt like they had lost their identity. They had lost their homeland, they would lost everything, and now they're back, and maybe, just maybe, God was going to do something. That maybe there's hope that we can be a people again, a hope that something amazing is going to happen. And so that's where we're at in this story. Nehemiah chapter 4, I encourage you to find that on your device or your Bible. I've got my, my large print ESV Bible, the large print has helped me because I'm a man of a certain age, and it helps because I can, I can read it. But whatever device you use in your devotion time, I, I encourage you to find Nehemiah chapter 4. That's where we're going to be, and we're going to see this sort of project go from ruins to restoration and then to revival. Let's pause for a word of prayer. I'm glad you're here with us. If you're online, hello, we see you. It's great that we have people here in person. We meet like this on Sundays like Christ followers all over the globe. We are one big dysfunctional family of faith. And we gather like this on Sundays. Why Sunday? Because that was the day that Jesus changed human history forever because that tomb was empty. And many of us can testify that that changed our hearts as well to discover that great news. So that's why we gather on Sundays. Let's, uh, on the count of three, take a deep breath. One, two, three. Let it out. This is the great reset. This is the first day of the week, a Sunday. And we lift up the name of Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your love and your faithfulness. And Lord, as we lean into the scriptures, lean into your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us right here, right now. And Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us. Maybe a, a rebuilding work inside of us, Father. And we pray that, that your Holy Spirit would do that work. And we yield to you as King and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've titled this message today, Operation Frustration, because what we're going to see uh, in this rebuilding project of, of Nehemiah, the first thing they did, the people that came back, they rebuilt the altar uh, where they could start worship against, kind of start up their, their religious side of life again. And part of the reason that these foreign kings, these Persian kings, wanted to send people back to Jerusalem was they wanted those folks, those religious folks, to start praying for the sons uh, and the family of the kings. So there was like an agenda going on. That's why they were funding this whole rebuild project. So they get that part done, and then when Nehemiah comes on the scene, they're rebuilding the walls around the ancient city of Jerusalem. And it was very strategic. We saw that last week, that it was very strategic. We went clockwise around the city, 
around all the gates and the sections of the wall. And Nehemiah had everybody. We talked about a divine all-skate last week. That it was like a construction all-skate. Everybody got to play. So we saw rulers involved. We saw musicians, perfumers. Even though there was a perfumer type role in the ancient world. But perfumers. There were uh, all walks of life participating in rebuilding the, the walls of the city. Because you've got to start with the walls. That's protection from whoever might invade, right? So Nehemiah got that project started. That We saw that in Nehemiah chapter 3. And so now we plunge into chapter 4. And we're not, we're not going to read every single word of, of each chapter. I encourage you to do that. This is a, Nehemiah is a great story. Lessons in leadership, lessons in life. And so I encourage you to do that. But as we get into chapter 4, the project is underway. People are building this stuff, and they're doing a good job. In fact, we found out last week that it wasn't just some haphazard, you know, single brick wall they're doing. They're building an actual thick engineered wall. Because back in the day, you needed protection. And so they're building this wall, and we, we found out, if you remember from chapter 3, we find this phrase like five different times. They laid, and this is very strategic, they laid its beams set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. So this isn't just some simple little Lego wall they're doing here. This is an engineered thick wall to provide protection. And so the, the work is going great. It's in full swing, and uh, the people are excited, probably seeing some of this happen. And yay, team. And uh, then the, the locals around decide they don't like this. They don't like this construction stuff. And we meet this guy named Sandballot, which is an interesting name. He and his buddies, these locals, decide they don't want the work to continue. I don't, I'm not really sure why they're getting so angry with these people rebuilding the wall. Maybe they felt like this was a threat to them, the locals or something. But these, these folks get really angry at this wall being made. And they start egging the people on. They start making threats against the folks working on the wall. So it's not a great situation. And I just keep thinking... These, these people are about doing this great work. And, um, and it seems like when you do great work, sometimes you reach some obstacles, some difficulties. Sometimes it, you run into uh, some trouble. That never happens to us, does it? When we're working on something good, we got a good project, and something happens. What's that phrase? No good deed goes unpunished, right? They're working on this wall. They feel like they're doing God's work, and they got people making fun of them. In fact, in verse 6, we get this goofy little put-down. I'm not sure why they thought this was really going to do it. They're going to stop the work after this put-down, but they're like, even if a little fox crawls up on that wall, it's just going to tumble over. That, that was, that's all they got. That's all they could do is a fox, but so they're, they're facing this opposition. They get the wall up to about the halfway point, and that's pretty good, but it's starting to take shape now. So the locals are starting to take notice. And they're trying to, to get Nehemiah to stop the work. Uh, so much so that Nehemiah has to start getting people to weaponize. To have, say, their construction tool in one hand and their weapon in the other. Because there could be imminent attack. So the, Nehemiah starts to, to organize folks. Hey, we may f face an attack here. So arm yourselves up. We still need to continue the work. Uh, and he starts inviting people to even stay overnight in the city just in case there's a night attack and they can sound the alarm. So they prepare for imminent attack while they're doing the, the, the work. And we find out that Nehemiah does something pretty strategic as a leader. He 
gets people in family units to kind of work next to each other and have their weapons and their construction tools. Why is that genius? When there's imminent attack, you're not sure. I can just tell you as a dad, and one, maybe one day as a granddad, if, if, if my children are under threat, you know, you've heard the phrase mama bear. She comes out. she got claws. Hey, so it made sense that he's got people, families together because we're going to defend each other. So what a, what a mark of leadership genius that Nehemiah would have the families close by. And they're weaponizing. They're getting ready for this feeling imminent attack. And we find Nehemiah. As often we see now, he'll enter into prayer. And, uh, and, and he prays that God would, and this is, a, this is such a Bible word, but I like using it because it just sounds awesome to say. So Nehemiah prays and says, God, would you thwart the plans of, of these locals that are trying to stop the work? Don't you love that word, thwart? Hang on to it because we'll use it again if I can. So ask God to do that. And here's the deal. Nehemiah is right there with them. He's doing the work with them. He's not setting it all up and like, okay, you guys do this part. I'm going to grab some coffee. He's in the work with them, and we find at the end of chapter 4 that they're working dawn till dusk. And I, I've done enough farm work to know what that's like, to, to get up early in the morning and to work late at night. And they're working dawn to dusk, and the leaders and everybody, they don't even have time for a shower or a change of clothes. So, you know, we're all in this together. And even Nehemiah can't get a, a way to to get a shower. Here's the leader. We'll find out he's the governor, and yet he gets his hands dirty. Well, that brings us to chapter 5. So here we are at chapter 5. You go ahead and flip there. Chapter 5, what's going on here? Well, he's already faced some opposition. They're, ar they're armed up. They're working. Nehemiah's praying, hey, thwart those folks. He's telling the people, hey, don't be afraid. You know, God's going to be with us on this project. So then we get to chapter 5, and Nehemiah notices another problem. I mean, he's faced some opposition, right? The people in chapter 4, they face some external opposition. And by the way, with that external opposition, we find also in chapter 4 that some of the people are kind of losing heart in the matter. And they start worrying, eh, I'm not sure. Uh, this, they, people start to get afraid of the attack. It kind of slows them down a little bit. But Nehemiah has encouraged the people, hey, stay with it. God's with us. Keep your weapon handy. We're going to be good. God's going to going to take care of this for us. So all this opposition, and then Nehemiah finds another bit of opposition, and it comes in the form of oppression. And Nehemiah notices that some of the officials, the nobles, the people that are wealthy have been, in a sense, taking advantage of the poor. And there must have been some kind of a famine at this point. People are struggling to find enough to eat. And Nehemiah, it says, and this is interesting, he wasn't just a little angry. The scripture says in, in chapter 5, verse 6, and this is Nehemiah writing, I was very angry when I saw what the nobles were doing to people, making it almost impossible. Some people were so desperate for food that they were offering themselves in slavery just so they could eat. And Nehemiah is angry at them. And he's like, this has got to stop. And we find in, in chapter 5, the sort of leader that Nehemiah was, he was modeling generosity for the people. 
So he, would, he wasn't even taking his, his regular share. He was giving every meal he could. He would invite you know, people, sometimes 100 people, to gather with him to eat. He would share his meals, share what he had. He was modeling what it means for a leader to be generous. And so when he notices these nobles were not doing that, and if you know anything about how Israel was supposed to be for each other, they were supposed to take care of each other. Uh, the Israelites were supposed to take care of each other. If, did you know, if you were a farmer in, in the nation of Israel, by law, you couldn't even farm the entire field. You could go almost to the edge, and then you would leave some for the people who were poor and destitute and needed a, a meal. Like That's what you were supposed to do. In fact, every seventh year, you were supposed to forgive debt, uh, you know, cancel debts. You were, it was like a reset every seven years. And then every 49 years, it was a year of jubilee, where like family property went back to the actual family line. This was the way the nation was supposed to work. So when Nehemiah saw this going on, he's like, he must have been thinking in his head, this is why we're having all the problems. You keep ignoring what you're supposed to do. Israel, from the beginning, they were supposed to care for three groups of people. And Israel always struggled with this. They were supposed to take care of the AOWs. Anybody know what that means? Aliens, orphans, and widows. That's what they were supposed to do. And take care of the poor. There shouldn't have been a poor person amongst the Israelites. They were supposed to take care of each other. And here we got the nobles doing this. They just got back from exile. They had all this bad stuff happen to them. Now they're finally back. And Nehemiah's got to be like losing a grip here because this is the very reason that, that, that the people struggled because they kept ignoring what God asked them to do. Even ignoring the simple things of this person can't eat. They need a meal. They were doing that. So the nobles, strangely, maybe because they saw Nehemiah model generosity, they said, okay, okay, we, we'll, okay, we'll do it. Nehemiah, calm down. You know, take a chill pill. We're going to do this thing that you say. We see where we're wrong. We're going to fix it, which that's good. And so then Nehemiah does a very ancient Near Easter thing. He takes the fold of his garment and does this little shimmy with it. Now, that seems weird in our culture. It would be like me doing this, taking my pockets and pulling them out like that. And that was supposed to signify in the ancient Near East that you've made an oath, a promise, and there's going to be a curse on you if you don't do this. So the people agree. All right, so you got Nehemiah going, you know, I keep facing opposition from locals. I'm, I'm facing some opposition with the people getting a little frustrated with themselves. Now I'm dealing with people like the nobles taking advantage. And Nehemiah finally can get back to what they were supposed to be doing, which is fix this wall. So we enter chapter 6, and here comes what I like to call the trifecta of terror. Sanballat, that's that name again, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab. Now, Nehemiah is recording this stuff. I'm guessing he's wanting to put those guys' names down so he, the other people will be warned. Watch out for this trifecta of terror. So remember, this trifecta of terror has already threatened them several times, uh, even with like bodily harm. That's why they got to work with a weapon. Now they figure, well, we got to try some different approaches. So they want to stop this work, right? They decide, Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to distract the leader. We're going to try to oppose the leader, Nehemiah. 
So they kind of target Nehemiah now. Not just all the people now. Now they're going to get singular. If they figured, well, if you take out the leader, this project's over. So they go after Nehemiah, and they start with a number of things. They try to, they try to get a meeting. You know, they, they reach out to Nehemiah, maybe tweet at him, you know, some kind of DM. They said, hey, Nehemiah, there's a homeowners association meeting here in Jerusalem, and we need you to come out to, to, to do this meeting. And they try like four times. And Nehemiah, he sees through this little sham. He's like, no, I'm not going to be distracted. i got this thing i got to do. So, that, and then, so then they decide, well, we're going to do an open letter. Now, normally with communication, it wouldn't be an open letter. That's why it's so significant. Normally, if you got a, a message, right, you, you have this message, maybe it's on a, a scroll or something, and it's got, probably got a seal on it, and it's going to go from the messenger from one place to another. It's normally how this works. But they decide, this trifecta of terror decide, we're going to do an open letter. So that means it's not going to be sealed. It's just going to be open for everybody to read. Every little hand that it goes through is going to read. And what do they do? They threaten Nehemiah with treason against the king of Persia. Now, that's a pretty serious threat. That would be probably punishable by death. I don't know. So they decide to do this open letter and accuse Nehemiah of treason. Well, that also doesn't work. i got to hand it to you. This opposition group, they're pretty, they're pretty on it. They're pretty uh, resilient. They keep trying stuff. So the open letter doesn't work. So then they decide to hire an inside job. And they, they kind of lean on someone that's kind of maybe part of the, the, the rebuilding team. And uh, they say, okay, we're going to pay you to, to entice Nehemiah to come into the temple for a special meeting. Now, the temple was a special place. And there were only certain people who were allowed in the temple by Jewish law. Does anybody remember the only family line that was supposed to be working inside the temple or being inside the temple? Does anybody remember? Starts with an L. Yeah, Levites, the Levites. They were the only ones. If you were not Levite, you could not go into that temple. That's, that's a bad no-no. Bad juju will happen there. No that. You can't do that. So they try to entice Nehemiah, who is not a Levite. They try to entice Nehemiah into the temple. Again, the temple had some like inner places that were like only the high priest could go, but nobody sets foot in the temple unless you're Levite. So Nehemiah, he's like, there's, there's no way I'm going to do that. That's like violating the law, and it's you know, part of, part, I'm not going to do that. And uh, maybe Nehemiah had remembered the law. It's in Numbers 18.7 that says only a Levite could go in there, right? But he might have also been remembering another leader back in Israel's history who tried to pull that thing off. In 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah decided to try that. He uh, waltzed into the temple, and then the result of that was leprosy. So that wasn't cool. Now, leprosy could be several different skin diseases. We're not sure exactly what it was, but it wasn't good. It was gross. So, so Nehemiah may have had that guy in mind thinking, there's no way I'm walking into the temple because I don't want leprosy. That would be bad. Well, so that, again, is, is thwarted. He's not going to fall for that one. And we find Nehemiah once again praying. And here's where my favorite word comes back. And he's like, Lord, would you please thwart the opposition? I love that word. 
T-H-W-A-R-T, thwart. It's such a great bible sounding word. Anyway, so, Lord, would you stop these threats? You know, we've got to get this wall done. And guess what? Finally, in verse 15 of chapter 6, what do we see? Do you have your Bible open? The wall was completed in 52 days. That's why we called it 52. There it is, big spoiler alert. That's why we called it 52. 52 days, that's pretty good. So under two months, they, they got this pretty big wall done. And I, I think that's a big thing. Uh, way to go, team. Yay, yay, team. Now, we know from history, and there's a number of reasons we can know this, is around 445 B.C. That's about the time that, that this is taking place. So they, they, they work on it from August to, to, to early October, kind of where we're at right now. They get this wall up. And uh, once the wall is up, no more opposition. Unfortunately, that's not the case. They get the wall up, and then who's back at it again? The trifecta of terror. And this time, they just try like a letter war. And so they start writing letters to all the rich people in, on Nehemiah's team and saying, hey, let's, let's get this Nehemiah guy out. We don't like him. That is also thwarted. Come on, I thought, we'd be, I thought we were a team here thwarted again. So the wall is done. Here's the thing. What do, you, what do you think that felt like? The last time the wall was in this condition around Jerusalem was 140 years earlier. When King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire came and just destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, and took people into exile. So what does it feel like? Put yourself in their position for a minute. You've got all these people looking at this, and we're finally back. 140 years later, the temple is now operational, and the wall is done. They might have been thinking, Jerusalem's back, baby. I don't know. Or Israel's back. Or, or maybe they're thinking something else. Maybe they're thinking, are we back? Like, are we are we going to be the next empire? We've, we've had enough of those Assyrians. We've had enough of those Babylonians. We have enough for those Persians. Isn't it time for us to rise? What is going through their hearts? Now, there might have been some older generations there on the project going, they must have felt even more special because their great-grandparents talked about that wall. Their great-grandparents talked about Solomon's temple. Now, this second temple wasn't anywhere near Solomon's temple, but it's back. The people are back. The wall is ready. Is it our time to rise? What is God going to do now? Despite all the... I mean, look, they did the seemingly impossible thing. And foreign empires paid for it. God's people got funded by foreign empires who centuries before were wiping them out. Now these empires are giving them resources, helping them rebuild, and now they're back. This remnant is back. God's people, and by this time, of the 12 tribes of Israel, the main exiles are just part of two tribes. And who's the Bible nerd out there that could figure out who the two tribes were? One was Benjamin, I'm partial to that name, and Judah. And one of those lines is going to have a, a little baby born in the first century of that line from these same people. And that said baby 
will walk around those walls that Nehemiah and his team built. It just gives you chills, doesn't it? What is God going to do now? Despite the difficulty, despite the hardships, despite the opposition from the trifecta of terror, the wall is back, the people are there, and what is God going to do now? And my question for you is this is simple. What about you? What, what thing in your life, this seemingly impossible thing in your life, is maybe God calling for you? Whether you're young in the faith, maybe you've been in the faith for a while, maybe you're brand new to the faith, maybe you've never even said yes to the Jesus team. Is there something big that God Almighty has designed you to do and it seems impossible if God doesn't show up? Is there something in your life that God wants to do? Maybe it is a nonprofit that you're going to start that's going to help aliens, orphans, and widows like God's people were always supposed to be doing. Maybe, maybe your thing is going to be a project to bring, I don't know, water to a remote village. I don't know what it is that God might have you do, whether domestically or foreignly. What is God calling you to do? What impossible thing is he at? Maybe there's a spiritual project. Maybe there's some rebuilding that needs to happen in here. Maybe God's calling you to maybe reassess and revive what maybe has been lost. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. What is he calling you to do? Because I guarantee you it's something. Regardless of the opposition, regardless, yes, is it going to be hard? Sure. Are there going to be obstacles? Great, yes. That's what's to be expected. That is the deal. I love what one writer wrote a while ago, and she said this, pain is to be expected, accomplishing anything good, right? Pain is to be expected, misery is optional. I like that. Pain is to be expected, but misery is optional. It's going, to be, it's going to be hard. Jesus himself, didn't, didn't he say that once? He said something like this. In this world, you might have trouble. Oh, wait, did I, I, missed, I misquoted that one. He actually said, in this world, you will have trouble. I, I think he could speak pretty well to that. He faced some trouble represented right behind me on this wall. You know, the scriptures say that for the joy set before him, he went that way. He knew it was going to be hard work. That was some serious pain obstacles that he overcame. Pain is to be expected. Misery is optional. We're called to do the impossible sometimes. What is God calling you to do? And as a church family, what is God calling us to do that's impossible unless he shows up? Something in our community, something where we can bless people, help people. What is God calling us to do? Because I believe that God is a God who handles the impossible. That he can do extraordinary things with ordinary people, just like you and me. God is, can, can do that. And let's, let's seek him. Ask him what that is. And so I want, I want you to, to do this this week. Make this your priority. Is that Maybe you're still discovering what that impossible thing God's calling you to do. But do what Nehemiah did. Taking his advice. Taking his leadership. His principles. He kept praying upward and working forward. Praying upward, working forward. Sometimes Christians and Christ followers, even people of faith, kind of do this dichotomy. They do two different extremes. They're only just praying about it all the time, but actually don't do anything. Or some of us just go right ahead and start doing stuff without praying about it. Let's do both. Praying upward and working forward. That's my big, big statement today. That's where we could be. Jesus told us we're going to have trouble, regardless of the obstacles. Because sometimes our obstacles are people, sometimes it's finances, sometimes it's circumstances. What impossible thing is God calling you to do? Right? And let's keep praying upward and working forward. Philippians 2, 
12 to 13 says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now so much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You see, God works, we work. It's a partnership. And we're going to have trouble. We're going to have obstacles. But we work, God works. It's a partnership. God is asking you and I to partner with him for the good he wants us to accomplish. Partner with him. Imagine a church family. Imagine us, in this room even, doing the impossible that God's called us to do. Walking by faith that way. And I think the world around us will see great good. And, and the scriptures tell us that when they see our good works, they glorify God. Imagine a, a community of people doing that. That makes me excited. What is God calling you to do that's impossible? I want to pray for us here in a minute. But if you've never said yes to the Jesus team, you can do that. If you never said yes, I want to be a Christ follower, you can do that today. That's a good next step. Maybe your next step is being part of a local church family. We'd love to have you part of our family here. We've got a starting point session coming up. You can do that. Um, but whatever it is, there's a next step for each of us to take. Whether we're new to the faith, still figuring it out, or long in the tooth in the faith, there's a next step for us to take. What is God calling you to do? Let's pray. Father, you're awesome and mighty. And uh, we, we ask you boldly uh, for clarity, for guidance, for wisdom on, on those things that you're calling us to do, each of us. You're calling, calling us to do that may seem impossible. But God, we know that you are, are the king of impossible and you can do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. So Lord, we lean into that truth today. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.